Merry Christmas, everybody. We've got a special Dead Ideas episode for you. Just like last year, we are delivering to you some Christmas ghost stories. One is from Iceland, and the other is a special surprise, non-historical, bonus, but super awesome story courtesy of Andre. Soon to be history. Soon to be history story courtesy of Andre. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. So wait, wait, so these, so it's Christmas, and we're doing ghost stories, yep. which you're telling me is a long-standing tradition where? Uh, England. You remember, like, Charles Dickens's uh, The Christmas Carol? Yep. Has ghosts. It does have ghosts. Oh, but that so they, a... the stories don't have to be scary. They just... Well, I mean, it's, there was a big thing. Okay. In, like, the Victorian era of England, hmm. telling ghost stories. Would they just add ghosts to everything, kind of, year-round? Uh, no, well, I don't know. It was the Victorian era. (laughs) (laughs) So, anyway, the music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, who is sure to attend Vespers on Christmas Eve this year and observe the fast, lest ill luck be had and ghosts be seen in the night. (laughs) I feel like Rachel would be okay with some ghosts in the night. Yeah, well, yeah, she's that kind of girl. Invite him in. Say hi. (laughs) Uh, so, folks, it is Christmas time again, and once again, we are resurrecting the dead or maybe nearly dead tradition of telling ghost stories on Christmas. I actually don't know if anybody still does it in England anymore, but it used to be big, like right. I said. It used to be if big. If you're listening and you're in England, tell us, how many ghost stories do you hear every Christmas yeah. season? Check this box. <laughs> Zero to one, two to ten, more than ten. Which, by the way, and I feel like there's some irony involved in us recording this episode, because do either one of us celebrate Christmas? Well, with my family, I guess, yeah. You're kind of like, like yeah, just like, um, not really. Huh? I mean, I, I sort of do. <laughs> do we but, celebrate ghosts? Um, I, I definitely <laughs> celebrate ghosts. I am on <laughs> Team Ghost. All right. Yes. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. So with me to help haunt your holiday is Andre Solo. Hello. Hi. Uh, and uh, we are going to be telling... Two ghost stories today, one very old and one not at all. <laughs> I will be telling the tale of Glaumur, an Icelandic tale from the 13th century. Is he also the manufacturer of Glaumur's glue? <laughs> <laughs> then Andre will tell a story so new it hasn't even entered history yet. <laughs> because who wrote it, Andre? Oh, this is by Andre Solo. <laughs> yes, this is an original story for you folks. It is. For the first time here, which means the show gets all the copyright, right? Oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> wait a minute, I didn't talk to my lawyer about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that one will probably be a nice palate cleanser after my story, because the Glaumer story is going to be gloomy and dark. <laughs> See what you did there. Whereas Andre's story is a little dark, but also kind of comedic and lighthearted. A little yeah? bit, yeah, yeah. yeah. A little, yeah. little okay. bit of both. All right, let's go ahead and dive into it, huh? Let's do it. Okay. So, so let's set the stage. Are we in Are we in the chilly, snow-covered world of Iceland yes. in, in a December many eons ago? The both icy and volcanic island of Iceland. Hmm. <laughs> right? Okay. You had the ice and the fire together. <laughs> yeah. So this is a story of sheep, heroes, or would-be heroes, and a revenant called a draugr. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, 
It is, in fact, a Christmas story. Christmas actually features in here. Because, like pretty much all the Norse sagas, they were written down after the conversion to Christianity. Oh, right. But they still, like, preserve that culture and, like, carry on. But then they toss in the Christian elements, too, to kind of, like, make it okay to still tell the stories, right? Yeah. Yeah. It comes from a collection of Icelandic tales set down in the form we get it, in 1863 in A Book of Ghosts by the antiquarian Sabine Beringuld, who claims that it hails as far back as the 13th century and is itself composed from even earlier bits from the hoary, frosty ages of past. It fits into the Icelandic saga known as the Gretla, or Gretis Saga, and this saga tells of a man named Greter, a hero of sorts, but with a temper and terrible luck, who spends most of his life as an outlaw. Cool. He also... My kind of hero, by the way. I like yeah, this guy well, we'll just wait, because the other thing about him is he also refuses to be alone in the dark. <laughs> so get that. A, a badass, Icelandic, like, ice volcanic Viking hero who's afraid of the dark. Wait, but was, was this like a gas? Like he couldn't... He no. was not allowed to be alone at night? No. No, no, nothing like That's that. That's what I would have told the ladies. I've been like, but it's a gauge for me not to be alone at night. Well, apparently it was a question. Why is he afraid of the dark? Hmm. And this story explains oh. how he became afraid of the dark. So we should subtitle this story, Why Gretor the Viking Was Afraid of the Dark. Exactly. I love it. Yes. But this story itself is not really about Gretor per se. Rather, it begins with a herdsman named Thorhall. At the beginning of the 11th century, there stood a little way up the Valley of Shadows. That's actually the, wow. It's actually wow. near. This is in the Valley of Shadows. Is this in like Legend of Zelda? Or what? <laughs> in the Valley of Shadows in the north of Iceland, a small farm occupied by a worthy bonder named Thorhall and his wife. The farmer was not exactly a chieftain, but he was well enough connected to be considered respectable To back up his gentility, he possessed numerous flocks of sheep and a goodly drove of oxen. Torhall would have been a happy man, but for one circumstance. His sheep flocks were haunted. Yes. So here's the setup. Torhall is having problems keeping hired shepherds in his employ because of this rumor that his you know, uh, okay. his sheepwalks are haunted. Because they're just right? terrified so, so they quit and leave? Yeah. There's not like the shepherds are being found like disemboweled or something. Mm, that's not specified at least in the story. <laughs> but so just fill in the blank as you wish. Yeah. You listener. just wait though. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, he's like, well, what's a, what's a bondsman to do, right? So, but he gets a tip to try this Swede. He lives off in the woods by himself, in the priest wood. I like how they go right to a Swede. They're like, you can sell a Swede on anything. <laughs> well, he's a foreigner, right? All oh, the locals right, right. know, oh, and they're yeah. afraid. But he like, known the gossip. Maybe. Right. Yeah. So they're like, try this Swede. He's a woodcutter who lives way out in the priest's wood. So off Torhall goes to find this woodcutter. <laughs> this is a tough sell. I feel like if you came to me like, hey, um, would you like to leave the priest's wood and go to the Valley of Shadows? <laughs> I would say no, no. Well, you stay here with the clerics. Yeah, but he's a Swede. He's a Swede. <laughs> so, it's up for an adventure. <laughs> so, Torhall crossed Sletha Asi. Thence he bent his way to Armand's Fell, and just by the priest's wood, he met a strange-looking man driving before him a horse laden with faggots. 
in the old sense, the original sense. So not cigarettes like, or a very inappropriate slur, but right. rather uh, chunks of wood that would burn well, basically. Bundles of, of yeah, branches, right. yeah. yeah, Collected for firewood. The fellow was tall and stalwart. His face involuntarily attracted Thorhall's attention, for the eyes of an ashen gray were large and staring. The powerful jaw was furnished with very white protruding teeth, and around the low forehead hung bunches of coarse wolf-gray hair. Mm. Uh, pray, what is your name, my man? Asked. That sounded Italian. <laughs> I'm to get into my, <laughs> like... get into my uh, Scandinavian <laughs> accent here. <clears throat> pray, uh, uh, what is your name, my man? Asked the farmer, pulling up. Wouldn't it be like, what is your name, my man? Yeah, that's that... what I was trying to do. I can't do it. <laughs> Pray, what is your name, my man? Asked the farmer, pulling up. Glomer, and please you, replied the woodcutter. Torhall stared. Then, with a preliminary cough, <clears throat> he asked how Glomer liked faggot picking. <laughs> I know what that sounds like. I'm I'm laughing because it sounds like cigarettes. <laughs> right. Not much, was the answer. I prefer shepherd life. Well, will you come with me? Asked Torhall. I want a shepherd this winter uncommonly. If I serve you, it is on the understanding that I come or go as it pleases me. I tell you I am a bit truculent if things do not go just to my thinking. Wow, good, good word, truculent. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I shall not object to this. Answered the bonder. Completely <laughs> Italian. <laughs> I can't do it. Marco Polo's Glamour's <laughs> Valley. <laughs> I still not object to this. Answered the bonder. So I may count on your services. Wait a moment. You have not told me whether there be any drawback. I must acknowledge there is one. Said Torhal. In fact, the sheepwalks have got a bad name for bogies. Hmm. Sir. So, I am not the man to be scared at shadows, laughed Glaumer. So here's my hand to it. I'll be with you at the beginning of the winter night. And so Glaumer went into the employ of Torhall, shepherding his flock. Summer and then autumn passed, but not a word about the new shepherd reached the Valley of Shadows. The winter storms began to bluster up the glen, driving the flying snowflakes and amassing the white drifts at every winding of the vale. Ice formed in the shallows of the river, and the streams in which in summer trickled down the ribbed scarps were now transmuted into icicles. One gusty night, a violent blow at the door startled all in the farm. In another moment, Glaumer, tall as a troll, stood in the hall glowering out of his wild eyes, his gray hair matted with frost, his teeth rattling and snapping with cold, his face blood-red in the glare of the fire which smoldered in the center of the hall. Torhold jumped up and greeted him warmly, but the housewife was too frightened to be very cordial. Hmm. Weeks passed after that, and the new shepherd was daily on the moors with his flock. His loud and deep-toned voice was often borne down on the blast as he shouted to the sheep, driving them into the fold. His presence in the house always produced gloom, and if he spoke, it sent a thrill through the women who openly proclaimed their aversion to him. Proclaim their aversion. aversion. Their, okay, got yeah. it. Yeah. It's not what I was expecting them. After a thrill. Different <laughs> kind of thrill is what I was expecting. Yeah. Yeah. There was a church near the byre. Byre being like a barn, I think. 
A, yeah, a bear is like a stable, but for cattle and other animals rather than horses. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But Glaumer never crossed the threshold of the church. He hated psalmody. Apparently, he was an indifferent Christian. On the vigil of the nativity, Glaumer rose early and shouted for meat. Meat? exclaimed the housewife. No man calling himself a Christian touches flesh today. Is that Irish? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this is like a pan-European. It's, you know, it's like the it's the it's the Eurozone, right? It's like open borders. Like people from any country in Europe could be in Iceland. So I guess that's so. how it works. I guess so. Yeah. No man calling himself a Christian touches flesh today. Tomorrow is the Holy Christmas Day, and this is a fast. All superstition, roared Glaumer. As far as I can see, men are no better now than they were in the bonny heathen time. Bring me meat, and make no more ado about it. You may be quite certain, protested the good wife, if church roll not be kept, ill luck will follow. Glaumer ground his teeth and clenched his hands. Meat, I will have meat, or... And in fear and trembling, the poor woman obeyed. The day was raw and windy. Masses of grey vapour rolled up from the Arctic Ocean and hung in piles about the mountaintops. Now and then a scud of frozen fog, composed of minute particles of ice, swept along the glen, covering bar and beam with feathery hoar-frost. As the day declined, snow began to fall in large flakes, like the down of the eider duck. What is an eider duck? I don't know. <laughs> so if you live in Good Iceland, <laughs> send us a message. <laughs> One moment, there was a lull in the wind, and then the deep-toned shout of Glaumer high up the moor slopes was heard distinctly by the congregation assembling for the first vespers of Christmas Day. Darkness came on, deep as that in the rayless abysses of the caverns under the lava. See? Volcanic wow. Island! And still the snow fell thicker. The lights from the church windows sent a yellow haze far out into the night, and every flake burned golden as it swept within the ray. The bell in the lich gate clanged for evensong, and the wind puffed the sound far up the glen. Perhaps it reached the herdman's ear. Hark! Someone caught a distant sound or shriek, which it was he could not tell, for the wind muttered and mumbled about the church eaves, and then, with a fierce whistle, scudded over the graveyard fence. Glaumer had not returned when the service was over. Torhall suggested a search, but no man would accompany him, and no wonder it was not a night for a dog to be out in. Besides, the tracks were a foot deep in snow. The family sat up all night, waiting, listening, trembling. But no Glaumer came home. Dawn broke at last, wan and blear in the south. The clouds hung down like great sheets full of snow, almost to bursting. A party was soon formed to search for the missing man. A sharp scramble brought them to high land, and the ridge between the two rivers which join in Vatnastalar was thoroughly examined. Here and there were found the scattered sheep, shuddering under an icicled rock or half buried in a snowdrift. No trace yet of the keeper. A dead ewe lay at the bottom of a crag. It had apparently staggered over in the gloom, and had been dashed to pieces. Ooh. Yes. It's a hard end for a sheep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Presently, the whole party were called together about a trampled spot in the heath, where evidently a death struggle had taken place. For earth and stone were tossed about, and the snow was blotched with large splashes of blood. A gory track led up the mountain, 
and the farm servants were following it, when a cry, almost of agony, from one of the lads made them turn. In looking behind a rock, the boy had come upon the corpse of the shepherd. It was livid and swollen to the size of a bullock. It lay on its back with its arms extended. The snow had been scrabbled up by the puffed hands in the death agony, and the staring glassy eyes gazed out of the ashen gray, upturned face into the vaporous canopy overhead. From the purple lips lolled the tongue, which in the last throes had been bitten through by the white fangs, and a discolored stream which had flowed from it was now an icicle. Well, wow. wow. Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> but a flavored icicle. Yeah. <laughs> With trouble, the dead man was raised on a litter and carried to a gill edge. But beyond this, he could not be born. His weight waxed more and more. The bearers toiled beneath their burden. Their foreheads became beaded with sweat. Though strong men, they were crushed to the ground. Consequently, the corpse was left at the ravine bed, and the men returned to the farm. Next day, their efforts to lift Glaumer's bloated carcass and remove it to consecrated ground were also unavailing. Wow. On the third day, a priest accompanied them, but the body was nowhere to be found. Uh-oh. Another expedition without the priest was made. But it was on, wolves, right? And on this occasion, the corpse was discovered. So a cairn was raised over the spot. So they were just like, we're, we're done trying to move this nonsense. Yeah. We're yeah. just going to throw some rocks over it. Yeah. Oh, but he a never cairn made being it to... a pile of rocks to mark a grave. Of course, right? yeah. But he never made it to consecrated ground. Never made it to consecrated ground. Ooh. That's okay. true. Yep. Okay. So to fast forward a little bit. After this, strange things started happening on the farm. Footsteps would be heard in the night outside the house, and the sound of a hand feeling along the walls and clutching at the woodwork and breaking it into splinters. Ooh. So actually like a... Oh. And they would find like the splinters in the morning. Oh, that's the that. creepiest part. It's like it's not my imagination. <laughs> right. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Torhall, meanwhile, needed a new shepherd, so... Started asking around again, but of course the locals are all by now far too afraid to take him up on anything. Right. He has to wait till summer when finally a vessel comes in from Norway. <laughs> <laughs> Those Norwegians don't know anything. Yeah, yeah. Sign them all up. All these foreigners. Yeah. yeah. A young man gets off the boat named Torgaut. Okay. Torhall and Torgaut. Right. Yeah. And he immediately recruits him. Uh, but being a man of some conscience, Torhall feels he has to at least warn him of the dangers. Hmm. But Torgaut says, I fear them not, answered Torgaut. I shall be with you at cattle slaughtering time. But when the next Christmas Eve rolls around, they find him the next morning, so Christmas morning, Wow. lying across... Thanks Glaumer. a lot, Santa. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Somebody was, like, was on the naughty list. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they find him the next morning, lying across Glaumer's cairn with his spine, his leg, and arm bones shattered. Wow. Very much dead. Is he also bloated? Um, uh, doesn't say. Okay. Doesn't say. Yeah. Probably freshly done. Right. Now no one will help Torhal, save for one person, an old cow herd. <laughs> from Italy! <laughs> from Italy. <Right. laughs> who had always served the family. So he's just too loyal to say no, wow. basically. But the next Christmas Eve after that, Torhall hears a sound coming from the cattle buyer. On opening the door, he found the cattle goring each other. Hmm. And then he found, slung across the stone that separated the stalls, was 
something. Thorthall stepped up to it, felt it, looked close. It was the cowherd, perfectly dead. His feet on one side of the slab, his head on the other, and his spine snapped in twain. Ooh. Now at this time, Greater, a hero of great fame. So here, finally, as all of this is part of Greatest Saga, right? So here, right. finally, the, enter, the hero enters upon the stage, right? Yeah. right? Perfect. Yeah. A hero of great fame and a native of the north of the island was in Iceland, and as the hauntings of this vale were matters of gossip throughout the district, he inquired about them and resolved on visiting the scene. So Greter busked himself for a cold ride, mounted his horse, and in due course of time drew rein at the door of Torhall's farm with the request that he might be accommodated there for the night. <clears throat> Coughed the bonder. Uh, perhaps you are not aware? I am perfectly aware of it all. I want to catch sight of the troll. Mm. Ooh. But, <laughs> but your horse is sure to be killed. I will risk it. Glomer, I must meet. So there's an end of it. I am delighted to see you, spoke the bonder. At the same time, should mischief befall you, don't lay the blame at my door. Never fear, man. <laughs> so they shake hands. The horse was put into the strongest stable. Torhall made Greter as good cheer as he was able, and then, as the visitor was sleepy, all retired to rest. The night passed quietly, and no sounds indicated the presence of a restless spirit. The horse, moreover, was found next morning in good condition, enjoying his hay. Hmm. Well, this is unexpected, exclaimed the bonder <laughs> gleefully. Now, where's the saddle? We'll clap it on, and then goodbye, and a merry journey to you. <laughs> Uh, 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 goodbye, echoed Greter. I'm going to stay here another night. You had best be advised, urged Torhall. If misfortune should overtake you, I know that all your kinsmen would visit it on my head. I've made up my mind to stay, said Greter, and he looked so dogged that Torhall opposed him no more. All was quiet next night. Not a sound roused Greter from his slumber. Next morning he went with the farmer to the stable. The strong wooden door was shivered and driven in. They stepped across it. Greter called to his horse, but there was no responsive whinny. I am afraid, began Torhall. Greter leapt in and found the poor brute dead, the horse that yes, is, right. and with its neck broken. Now, said Torhall quickly, I've got a capital horse, a skewbald, down by Tunga. I shall not be many hours in fetching it. Your saddle is here, I think, and then you will just have time to reach. I, I stay here another night, interrupted Gretir. I implore you to depart, said Thorhall. My horse is slain, but I will provide you with another. Fred, answered Gretir, turning so sharply round that the farmer jumped back, half frightened. No man ever did me injury without ruining it. Now your demon herdsman has been the death of my horse. He must be taught a lesson. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Gretter, do this. <laughs> Would that he were, groaned Torhall, but mortal must not face him. Go in peace and receive compensation for me for what has happened. I must revenge my horse. <laughs> <sighs> An obstinate man will have his own way, but if you run your head against the stone wall, don't be angry because you get a broken pate. Night came on. Greter ate a hearty supper and was right jovial. Not so Torhall, 
who had his misgivings. At bedtime the latter crept into his crib, which, in the manner of old Icelandic beds, opened out into the hall, as berths do out of a cabin, like in a ship, I guess. Greter, however, determined on remaining up, so he flung himself on a bench with his feet against the posts of the high seat, and his back against Torhall's crib, then he wrapped one lappet of his fur coat round his feet and the other about his head, keeping the neck opening in front of his face so that he could look through into the hall. <laughs> so he's like oh, all okay. wrapped up in this like fur cloak with just a little like little peephole left. <laughs> <laughs> there was a fire burning on the hearth, a smoldering heap of red embers. Every now and then a twig flared up and crackled, giving gritter glimpses of the rafters as he lay with his eyes wandering among the mysteries of the smoke-blackened roof. Oh. The wind whistled softly overhead. The clerestory windows, covered with the amnion of sheep, admitted now and then a sickly yellow glare from the full moon, which, however, shot a beam of pure silver through the smoke-hole in the roof. A dog without began to howl. The cat, which had long been sitting, demurely watching the fire, stood up with raised back and bristling tail, then darted behind some chests in a corner. The hall door was in a sad plight. He had been so riven by the spectre that it was made firm by wattles only, and the moon glinted athwart the crevices. Soothingly, the river, not yet frozen over, prattled over its singly bed as it swept round the knoll on which stood the farm. Greta heard the breathing of the sleeping women in the adjoining chamber and the sigh of the housewife as she turned in her bed. Then... Click, click. It's only the frozen turf on the roof crackling with the cold. The wind lulls completely. The night is very still without. Then, hark. Clunk, clunk. A heavy tread, beneath which the snow yields. Every footfall goes straight to Gritter's heart. A crash on the turf overhead. By all the saints in paradise, the monster is treading on the roof. For one moment, the chimney gap is completely darkened. And two eyes, a flash of red ash reflected in those lusterless eyes, gaze down the chimney hole. Then the moon glances sweetly in once more, and the heavy tramp of Glaumer is audibly moving towards the farther end of the hall, up on the roof. Hmm. A thud, he has leapt down. Gretor feels the board at his back quivering, for Thorhall is awake and is trembling in his bed. Oh yeah, they're like in the same bunk or something. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> the steps pass round to the back of the house, and then the snapping of the wood shows that the creature is destroying some of the outhouse doors. Hmm. And I think, eh, I want to say like in old world parlance, an outhouse is just like another structure outside the main house. Not, not necessarily like, not a toilet. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. He tires of this apparently, for his footfall comes clear towards the main entrance to the hall now. The moon is veiled behind a watery cloud, and by the uncertain glimmer, Gretir fancies that he sees two dark hands thrust in above the door. His apprehensions are verified, for, with a loud snap, a long strip of panel breaks, and light is admitted. Snap! Snap! Another portion gives way, and the gap becomes larger. Then the waddles slip from their places, and a dark arm rips them out in bunches and flings them away. Hmm. There is a crossbeam to the door, holding a bolt which slides into a stone groove. Against the gray light, Gritter sees a huge black figure heaving itself over that bar. Crack! It has given way, and the rest of the door falls in shivers to the earth. 
Oh, heavens above! exclaims the bonder. <laughs> Stealthily, the dead man creeps on, feeling at the beams as he comes. Then he stands in the hall with the firelight on him. Fearful sight. The tall figure distended with the corruption of the grave, the nose fallen off, the wandering vacant eyes with the glaze of death on them, the sallow flesh patched with green masses of decay. The wolf-gray hair and beard have grown in the tomb and hang matted about the shoulders and breast. The nails, too, they have grown. It is a sickening sight, a thing to shudder at, not to see. Motionless, with no nerve quivering now, Torhall and Greter hold their breath. Glaumer's lifeless glance strayed round the chamber. It rested on the shaggy bundle by the high seat. Cautiously he stepped towards it. Greter felt him groping about the lower lappet and pulling at it. The cloak did not give way. Another jerk, Greter kept his feet firmly pressed against the posts so that the rug was not pulled off. The vampire seemed puzzled. He plucked at the upper flap and tugged. They call it a vampire here. Right. It's a draugr. I'll say draugr. Your call. Yeah. yeah. They're obviously not using it to mean the Transylvanian blood-sucking. Yeah. I don't know right. if they knew about if that was the term, like right. in the Victorian era. But yeah. anyway, the draugr seemed puzzled. He plucked at the upper flap and tugged. Dretter held to the bench and bedboard so that he was not moved, but the cloak was rent in twain, and the corpse staggered back, holding half of it in his hands and gazing wonderingly at it. Before it had done examining the shred, Gretter started to his feet, bowed his body, flung his arms about the carcass, and, driving his head into the chest, strove to bend it backward and snap the spine. Wait, he's going with a headbutt maneuver on this? And and then a bear hug. Yeah! He's going to snap the spine just the way like everybody else was found snapped. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. yeah. Parallelism. He didn't bring any swords or anything else to this gunfight? This, this is very Beowulf-like to me. Yeah, and yeah, definitely. I think they ended up in like a hand-to-hand, like grapple, didn't they? It is, you know, you gotta do what you gotta do. It's <laughs> man-to-man combat here. Yeah. A vain attempt, however. The cold hands came down on Gretter's arms with diabolical force, riving them from their hold. Gretter clasped them about the body again. Then the arms closed round him. Oh, he's returning the bear hug. (laughs) And began dragging him along. The brave man clung by his feet to benches and posts, but the strength of the Draugr was the greater. Posts gave way, benches were heaved from their places, and the wrestlers at each moment neared the door. Sharply writhing loose, Gretter flung his hands round a roof beam. He was dragged from his feet. The numbing arms clenched him round the waist and tore at him. Every tendon in his breast was strained. The strain under his shoulders became excruciating. The muscles stood out in knots. Still, he held on. His fingers were bloodless. The pulses of his temples throbbed in jerks. The breath came in a whistle through his rigid nostrils. All the while, too, the long nails of the dead man cut into his side. And Greta could feel them piercing like knives between his ribs. Then at once his hands gave way, and the monster bore him reeling towards the porch, crashing over the broken fragments of the door. Hard as the battle had gone with him indoors, Gretter knew that it would go worse outside, so he gathered up all his remaining strength for one final, desperate struggle. The door had been shut with a swivel into a groove. This groove was in a stone, which formed the jam on one side, and there was a similar block on the other, into which the hinges had been driven. Now, as the wrestlers neared the opening, Gretter planted both his feet against those stone posts, holding Glaumer by the middle. He had the advantage now. The dead man writhed in his arms, 
drove his talons into Gretter's back and tore up great ribbons of flesh, but the stone jams held firm. <laughs> now, thought Gretter, I can break his back, and thrusting his head under the chin so that the grisly beard covered his eyes, he forced the face from him, and the back was bent as a hazel rod. If I can but hold on, thought Gretter, and he tried to shout for Torhall, but his voice was muffled in the hair of the corpse. So he's like, <laughs> <"Nur, nur, nur." laughs> Torhall! <laughs> Suddenly, one or both of the doorposts gave way. Down crashed the gable trees, ripping beams and rafters from their beds. Frozen clods of earth rattled from the roof and thumped into the snow. Glaumer fell on his back, and Gretter staggered down on top of him. The moon was at her full. Large white clouds chased each other across the sky, and as they swept before her disk, she looked through them with a brown halo round her. The snow cap of Yorunderfall, however, glowed like a planet. Must be some mountain peak or something. Mm. The snow cap of Yorunderfell, however, glowed like a planet. Then the white mountain ridge was kindled. The light ran down the hillside. The bright disk stared out of the veil and flashed at this moment full on the Draugr's face. Gretter's strength was failing him. His hands quivered in the snow, and he knew that he could not support himself from dropping flat on the dead man's face, eye to eye, lip to lip. Oh. The eyes of the corpse were fixed on him, lit with the cold glare of the moon. His head swam as his heart sent a hot stream to his brain. Then a voice from the gray lips said, Thou hast acted madly in seeking to match thyself with me. Now learn that henceforth ill luck shall constantly attend thee that thy strength shall never exceed what thou is, and that by night these eyes of mine shall stare at thee through the darkness till the dying day, so that for very horror thou shalt not endure to be alone. Oh, oh, wow. Gretter, at this moment, noticed that his dirk had slipped from its sheath during the He had the a dirk this whole time? He had a dirk, which is a dagger, Come on, right? yeah. yeah he had it's a, a good-sized dagger, though. Yeah, yeah. A combat dagger. Yeah, yeah. right. He noticed that his dirk had slipped from its sheath during the fall, and that it now lay conveniently near his hand. The giddiness which had oppressed him passed away. Right. He clutched at the dagger haft, and with a blow severed the draugr's throat. Then, kneeling on the breast, he hacked till the head came off. Wow. Torhall appeared now, his face blanched with terror. Who wants some hot cocoa? <laughs> <laughs> but when he saw how the fray had terminated, he assisted Gretter gleefully to roll the corpse on the top of a pile of faggots, which had been collected for winter fuel. Fire was applied, and soon far down the valley the flames of the pyre startled people and made them wonder what new horror was being enacted in the upper portion <laughs> of the Vale of Shadows. Wow. Next day, the charred bones were conveyed to a spot remote from the habitations of men and were there buried. What Glaumer had predicted came to pass. Never after did Gretter dare to be alone in the dark. <laughs> wow. That gives me a legitimate chill. I get a little <laughs> chill down my spine. Yeah. That's, that's powerful. Yeah. Now, if, I'm sure if you actually went to the actual Icelandic saga text, it would have been written very differently. This is, I'm it's sure, the, the interpretation yeah, of right. this antiquarian. Sure. But it was a pretty exciting interpretation, yeah. I have to say. <laughs> a lot of action. I was surprised by that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, that was really good. I was also really surprised by how much like zoomed out kind of narration there was. Like Ooh. they're in the action, and then suddenly you're talking about the moonlight, or you're talking about the oh, river, yeah. and right. it's like all this environmental kind of thing that was yeah, really that kind, of kind of interesting to me. Like yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I also at one point when they were uh, when he was like kind of waiting, like so all wrapped up in in the cloak and waiting for this thing to show up and attack yes. the house. It talks about how the light was coming through the clarity windows yeah. covered with something of sheep. So I'm assuming amnion. these were... What, what, what? Amnion was the word, and I don't know what that is. Let's so the it up amniotic fluid of, of sheep is something Maybe. Yes. So it sounds like it's either some kind of paper or hide that was that was treated with this stuff to be... Trans- like, it's basically oiled paper or oiled uh, lambskin to be transparent and let some light through. Yeah, wow. I did not put that together, but that makes I'm perfect guessing, sense. You know. And Google tells me that amnion means the innermost membrane that encloses the embryo of an animal. Okay. Uh, oh. Or a bird, or like a mammal, a bird, or a reptile. So they used a, a thin membrane from like sheep uh, wombs, basically. Well, sheep embryos. Yeah. Which would have then been as a window. It wouldn't have been like you couldn't see through it and wave at somebody, right. but you would let light through. It would let some light through. And he said it was yellow. Some... I like that. How like it would glow yellow with the yeah. moonlight, which of course is white or silver. Uh-huh. And they even specify that that the moonlight coming through the top was a shaft of silver light. Ah, but the yeah. windows would glow yellow because that's the color of the embryo uh, material, yeah. apparently. I like that a lot. Yeah. 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 So if I, you live in Iceland and you, I mean, back in the day, and you don't have any glass, and you, I mean, even if you could get glass, yeah. it's probably expensive, you're like, I, that's okay. I can make my own. It's going to use some sheep innards. Yeah. In yeah. fact, I'm searching right now to buy online some Icelandic <laughs> Amnion windows. <laughs> it was a little surprise for Rachel for the new year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, I redecorated, honey. <laughs> All right, we have one more story for today. We do. So that was our historical story, right? right? Check that box. <laughs> now, now we have the soon-to-be history story. We do. <laughs> written by our very own Andre Zolo. Yeah, so this story is called 13 Candles. It was originally, I composed it for a Friday the 13th party that we had, mm-hmm. uh, which happened in October this year. Which I was there for. You were there, um, as were many of our friends. Uh, this story was originally set in Friday, October 13th, because that occurred this year. Uh-huh. Uh, but in honor of our holiday season ghost stories, I'm going to change it to uh, Friday, December 13th. Oh, okay. <laughs> 13 candles. So this is like a Nightmare Before Christmas kind of combo. Exactly. Halloween and Christmas. Yes, put yep. them together at yep. last. 13 candles. Moira was planning her 13th birthday. She turned 13 on December 13th, which made it her golden birthday. Her mom said that was very good luck. It would also be Friday the 13th, which Daddy said was bad luck, and Mommy said, shut up, dear. (laughs) (laughs) The most important part of planning a birthday party is choosing your guest list. Moira was inviting all of her friends. She invited Samantha Slanderstein, Moira's best friend in the whole world, A wretched little bitch who had dirt on everyone they knew. Samantha would act friendly to their faces, then turn around and tell Moira all their dirty secrets. But Moira trusted her because she was always very nice when talking to her. Mm -hmm. Of course she was. Of course. She invited Clarice Clamwell, a dreary little girl who walked hunched over and always assumed the worst about everything. Her main hobbies were complaining, getting in the way, and getting terribly sick right in the middle of something fun. She invited Blake Sticky Fingers Snigsley, who was best known to adults and many of their classmates for his habit of thrusting his finger deep up his nose, seeing what he could shovel out, and none too discreetly, 
sucking it like hard candy. Oh. <laughs> I might be that guy apart from the sucking it like hard candy. <laughs> I won't ask. <laughs> but the real reason the kids called him Sticky Fingers was for his talent at stealing things, which helped Moira out when he stole answers to tests for her. Mm. She invited Oswald the Adventurer, a boy who was known for two things. Bravely getting into just about every dangerous situation one could imagine, and wetting his pants with fear every single time. <laughs> this had lost its charm about the time they were in the second raid, but he had once chased off a rabid dog that was after Moira, ruining his new pair of jeans in the process. Wait, this is like the worst like character generation <laughs> process where you're like, I want to get a bonus, so I'm going to take a disadvantage. All that thinking... says I wait, I wet my pants every time. <laughs> but again, plus comes. two to intelligence. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> she invited the Little Thing twins. There was Libby Little Thing, the Little Little Thing, short for her age. She was fond of attending church and liked to draw pictures of hell with all of her dead ancestors as burning stick figures. Then there was her sister, Lizabelle Little Thing, the larger Little Thing, who towered three feet higher than the other guests. She's often mistaken for Libby Little Thing's mother, not just because of her height, but because she is older by 37 minutes and fiercely protective of her sister. <laughs> She invited Derek the Diddler, a precocious boy whose pants always seemed to be too tight and who was infamous for touching himself in curious ways during class. This is so age appropriate. <laughs> Moira had always had a low opinion of him until she needed someone to teach her how to dance and he volunteered. Later, he went on to teach her wrestling. He was a very skilled teacher. <laughs> She invited Alyssa LaVlonde, who had discovered at age seven that she was blessed with enormous psychic talent. Since then, she had managed to get over 700 separate predictions wrong, <laughs> most of them about crushes and boyfriends. That's typical. Yeah. But she'd also had one stunning success when she correctly predicted that the school play would end with calling the ambulance, and everyone regarded her as spookily accurate. Also typical. Also typical. <laughs> and she invited Todd, who was a pretty okay guy. Of course, Mommy and Daddy would be there too, and they said she could invite Aunt Abitha, her weird aunt. Aunt Abitha was bringing something special for the party, something she had found in the attic that used to belong to Uncle Tom. Uncle Tom died when he was a kid, and no one would ever talk about what happened. Mommy looked at the guest list. That's 12 people total, she said. Wouldn't it be funny if you had 13 guests at your 13th birthday party? Moira rolled her eyes. There are 13, Mom. Mr. Friskers will be there. Mr. Friskers was Moira's pet cat, and a real spiteful little shit. He had managed to puke, piss, poop, and shred every object Moira's parents had ever cared about. Moira loved Mr. Friskers more than anything in the world. On the big day, Moira found her Aunt Abitha sitting on the front porch, blowing her bubble pipe and drawing pictures of eggplants in her dream journal. <laughs> sure they're eggplants they're eggplants <laughs> sometimes an eggplant is only an eggplant <laughs> she loves vegetables what? she showed Moira the special surprise it was a set of old weird looking birthday decorations like something off a 1950s TV show Moira thought they looked creepy but they obviously made her mom uncomfortable so she decided she liked them Aunt Abitha will you tell me what happened to Uncle Tom oh dearie her aunt said I don't think that's a good story for a birthday. Soon the guests started to arrive. The first person to come in was Blake Sticky Fingers Stingsley. He put out his hand to shake the grown-ups' hands, but Mommy and Daddy backed away. He's a booger boy. He's right? the booger boy. <laughs> <laughs> 
Then Clarice Clamwell hunched her way up the front porch and in the door. It's nice to see you, Clarice, Moira's mom said. I don't feel well, said Clarice. <laughs> Oswald the adventurer arrived in refreshingly dry pants. He had his backpack with him, loaded with spare changes. He set a gift bag on the table and said to Moira, It's underwear. Can never have too much underwear. Next was a little of blonde, all hoop earrings and crystals. Today's going to be a very good day, she predicted. Close behind her, some would say too close, came Derek the diddler. He didn't have anything to put on the gift table, but he hugged Moira for a long time and whispered, I'll give you your present later. <laughs> <laughs> then the twins came in. Libby Little Thing had a present exactly the size, shape, and weight of the Holy Bible for the fifth year in a row. Lizabelle helicoptered over her and reminded her to say happy birthday. Finally came Samantha Slanderstein, fashionably late as always. She brought the largest gift and wore the nicest party dress and gave Moira two pecks on the cheek like they were in Europe. Moira, you're like a grown-up now. Soon you'll be almost as beautiful as me. Moira blushed and hugged her. Oh yeah, and Todd was there. Sup, he said. <laughs> Meanwhile, Mr. Friskers had brought a birthday present of his own. It was a chocolate surprise inside of Dad's slippers. <laughs> Moira asked her parents if she could open her presents now. No presents till after we eat cake, her dad said, and everyone squealed in delight. Everyone except Clarice Clamwell, who was allergic to cake. They all took seats around the big dining room table. Aunt Abatha put 13 candles on the cake, but Aunt Abatha hadn't told anyone that the candles had also come from Uncle Tom's old stuff or that they were trick candles that would not go out when you blow on them. The cake was beautiful, decorated with white frosting and big fresh strawberries all around the edge. Everyone sang happy birthday, although Samantha sang it better than anyone else. And as they got to the end of the song, Aunt Abatha said, Make a wish and blow them all out! Moira closed her eyes. She wished to be famous, so famous that everyone in the whole town knew her name. She took a deep breath and... Why do I think that, that this wish is actually going to come true? At first, none of the candles went out, but kids are strange creatures. They have a small capacity for eating the dinner they're given, and a very big capacity for whooping, hollering, whining, and otherwise blowing air. Moira summoned the full force of these childhood powers and blew like it was the last thing she would ever do. Is <laughs> she like summoning her anime chi? Exactly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is a special power she's broking. Yeah. Finally, with all of her huffing and puffing, just one candle went out. The guests all started laughing, and Abatha covered a smile with one hand. But Daddy was not laughing. He had just been about to get the perfect shot of his daughter's face frozen in a grotesque spitting posture that he could show to all of her future boyfriends. <laughs> now he put a hand on his chest and set down the camera, staggering back a few steps. Dear, what's the matter? Mom asked. Nothing, he said. I'm, I'm fine. And with those final words, he fell dead on the floor of a heart attack. The children froze in their seats. Some gasped, some shrieked, some looked to the remaining adults. Moira's mom ran to her husband's side, shaking him and calling his name. Looking at the children, Aunt Abatha realized someone needed to calm them down. 
Uh, Moira, she said, blow out your candles. Moira had a bad feeling, but everyone was looking at her, so she did it. She took a deep huff and blew for all of her might. All of the candles guttered out, and all of them sparked back to life. Damn it. All of them, that is, except for one. Little Derek started shaking in his seat, but he does a lot of squirming, and at first no one paid any attention. Derek the Diddler. Derek the Diddler. <laughs> Moira's mom looked up from Daddy now. Abatha, for God's sake, get those candles out. I'm calling 911. And Abatha took the cake into the kitchen. Before Mom could reach the phone, she saw Derek the Diddler shaking like he was having a seizure. She grabbed hold of him, which had been a dream of his for quite some time. <laughs> <laughs> In the kitchen, Aunt Abatha ran one of the candles under the kitchen sink. <laughs> Derek's jaw locked up. His teeth sank into Moira's mom's neck. Mom shrieked and pulled at him, tearing him free with all of her might. <laughs> and with a great spurt of blood. They both dropped to the floor, and Mommy had already bled out by the time Derek stopped breathing. Aunt Abatha heard the screaming. She tossed a handful of candles into the sink and ran out to the dining room. The candles landed just beside the swirl of water from the running faucet. They started to sputter. When she saw the dining room, Aunt Abatha threw both hands to her mouth. Oh no, she said. It's happening again. It's, it's happening again. Everyone was falling apart except for Sticky Fingers. He had a dilemma. He knew he had run out of ammo in his nose, so he had swiped a big strawberry from the cake just before it was taken away. Now he figured they were probably not going to get any cake, so he might as well eat the strawberry, but he didn't want anyone to see. He ducked his head down and shoved the berry in his mouth, whole. In the kitchen, a candle sputtered out. Blake Snigsley's eyes went wide. He stood up, pounding on the table, gasping as he choked on the strawberry. <laughs> Everyone started screaming. Oswald the Adventurer jumped to his feet. I'll save him, he yelled, <laughs> his jeans immediately three shades darker. <laughs> Oswald pounded on his back. He hugged him and heimlecked him. He tried to reach into Snigsley's snot-encrusted mouth, but the berry was stuck firm. Snigsley turned red, then blue, and finally it seemed... A fitting shade of green. And he stopped moving. All the kids were silent, except for Clarice Clamwell. I don't feel well, she said. Aunt Abatha was still mumbling to herself. Moira grabbed her and shook her. Aunt Abatha, you have to do something. You're right, Aunt Abatha said. This this, this can't be happening. I, I, I have to take my pills. In the kitchen, one more candle rolled into the water and went out. Aunt Abatha reached into her purse for her antipsychotics. Rather than taking one or two, she dumped a whole handful of them in her mouth, her hands shaking as she went. Moira grabbed her and tried to stop her, but she swallowed. <clears throat> Within minutes, Aunt Abatha slumped against the wall, dying just as she had lived in a peaceful dreamland. Samantha was crying. What do we do? she asked. I don't feel well, Clarice said. Oh, shut up, said Samantha. You'll be fine like always. I can't wait for her to die. <laughs> <laughs> but Clarice was not fine. All this violence had unsettled her stomach. She jumped to her feet and tried to make a mad dash to the bathroom. In the kitchen, a candle went out. 
Clarice never made it. She was barely to the hallway when a great font of vomit sprang from her lips. It wasn't pink or purple or orange or brown. It was black. It was a spray of black bile, and she fell face first into it. Her troubles were over at last. Yes. <laughs> Whoa, said Todd. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, when did Corano Reeves show up? <laughs> He's been here the whole time. <laughs> the children looked around at each other. No one knew what to do. No one, that is, except Oswald, the adventurer. We gotta do something, he said, his pants literally dripping. I'm getting the neighbors. And he took off at a run. In the kitchen, a candle sparked out. As Oswald charged into the hallway, he slipped on the great slick of black bile. He fell square in his butt, shattering a lamp, the pieces and the wiring falling right onto him and onto his soaking wet pants. With a great zzzz, Oswald the Adventurer was steamed and fried in a sauce of his own making. <laughs> at this point, the children were locked in fear. They looked around at each other in stony silence. Only Alyssa spoke up. I should use my powers, she said. There has to be a way out of this. Alyssa put her hands to her head, closed her eyes, and started humming to herself. But Libby Littlething shook her head in horror. That's Satanism, she said. <laughs> we can't do that. We have to pray. We have to pray. <laughs> Little Littlething caught sight of the crucifix hanging on Moira's dining room wall. She jumped up and flung herself toward it, aiming to kneel before it and pray. But sometimes, when the zealous fling themselves... They fling too hard. <laughs> That's the quote on the back of the book. Exactly. <laughs> Libby slammed into the wall on her knees and looked up just in time to see the crucifix fall free. In the kitchen, a candle went out. The crucifix stabbed into the little thing's little head. She froze and with a quizzical look said, I taste communion wafers. <laughs> <laughs> and she went to join her ancestors. Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> now, Elizabeth, little thing, the larger little thing, rose with a snarl. You, she said, and pointed one meaty finger at Moira. You're doing this. Moira was shocked. Me? What? No. You killed her, Elizabeth said. She spotted a scissors on the side table, which had been used to wrap presents earlier, and she grabbed it. And you're not killing anyone else. With a great wail, she charged across the dining room, scissors held high. All this time, Alyssa Lavlon was still in her trance. Mm -hmm. Now she stopped humming. I see something, she said. I see the kitchen. I see a candle going out. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> Typical. <laughs> Thanks, psychic. <laughs> Lizabelle ignored her, running after Moira. The larger little thing had always been stubborn and hadn't always listened to rules. If she had, she might have known not to run with scissors. Instead, she lunged and she tripped. And when she hit the ground, she ran herself through. Now she could be with her sister forever. Do scissors do impaling damage? <laughs> it's definitely a saving throw involved. It, yeah, it's right? a piercing type yeah. of thing. Yes. <laughs> exactly. She should have been wearing a different kind of armor. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, depends on how complex the rules are. Maybe damage is just damage. <laughs> Alyssa opened her eyes. Moira, she yelled. 
It's the candles. Every time a candle goes out, one of us dies. I can sense it. Now, to you or to me as adults, that sounds ridiculous. We know candles can't kill people. But even at 13, Moira still had enough of her childhood in her to believe deeply in what Alyssa had just said. All three girls, Moira and Alyssa and Samantha, ran as fast as they could into the kitchen. The candles that Aunt Abatha had thrown in the sink were all out, but there were five she didn't get to, still on the cake, and they were burning low. We have to keep them lit, Moira said. I'll look for the matches. Moira ran to the corpse of her Aunt Abatha and, with shaking hands, started digging through her purse. In the kitchen, Alyssa took steps of her own. Maybe she could use the stove to keep the candles lit. She turned the dial, but she wasn't used to gas stoves, and she didn't understand why no flame appeared. She turned it further, and further. There was a funny smell in the room, but no flame. Now Samantha pointed. Alyssa, she hissed. One of them going out. Alyssa looked. Sure enough, a candle was sparking and winking and dying away. Frantically, she turned every switch and hit every button on the stove that she could, but the candle went out. And then, Alyssa's finger found the electric starter. Boom! A ball of fire roared through the room, throwing little Alyssa against the far wall. It was over as fast as it had started, and all of the hair was gone from her head and her eyebrows. In death, she looked exactly like a meditating monk. I found the matches, yelled Moira. She and Samantha practically jumped over poor little Alyssa's body. Together they lit match after match and held them to the dying candles. But there was only so much wax left. If you want to avoid dying, start some little fires. <laughs> Hold, have as many matches lit as possible in your hand. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it never fails. This is not in my Boy Scout manual. <laughs> <laughs> but there was only so much wax left, and all their efforts did was melt it faster. One candle in particular started to gutter out. Both girls held a match shoot at the exact same time, and it melted away to nothing, drooping into the cake with a hiss. Shh. Moira looked at Samantha in horror. Oh no, said Samantha, backing away. No, not me. I'm not going to die in some brutal way. I'm, I'm supposed to be a star. And before anything could explode, collapse, erupt, or behead her, Samantha Slanderstein put one hand gracefully to her head, swooned, and fainted dead on the spot. <laughs> So, you know, she goes out the way a star should. Exactly. Swooning. Yeah. <laughs> Swooning. Yes, yes. And, and you know, she leaves a beautiful corpse. Yes. Yeah. A dramatic death. Yeah. Moira simply sobbed. In the dining room, Todd stood up for the first time since the catastrophe started. He peeked in the kitchen. Uh, I should probably, like, go, he said. He started walking away, then remembered his manners. Oh, uh... Happy birthday, Moira. The front door closed behind him. Moira didn't notice another candle burn out, and she barely heard the car screech in the street out front, or the wet smack when it ran into something soft. Moira looked at the candles. There were only two left, and they were little more than stubs half-melted into the frosting. Both were burning low and sputtering without fuel. Oh, oh, Mr. Friskers. <laughs> Mr. Friskers walked in, looking mighty ornery, and for a second Moira almost smiled. But then she remembered he was one of her guests. She looked back at the candles, and one of them had gone out. Meow! 
Mr. Fiskers had spotted a black spider on the kitchen wall and leapt up on the counter after it. He landed square on Mom's meat grinder, hitting the switch with his paw, and danced along its edge, the churning blades just inches below him. The spider went higher on the wall. He leapt up to the hanging pot holder, barely hanging on by two paws. Knives and cleavers and giant pots soared down past his head. The whole pot holder swung far out over the stove, the burning range still lit. But he scrambled up onto the holder. The spider went across the ceiling, and Mr. Friskers dove onto the whirling blades of the ceiling fan, swinging round and round at a rate of nine lives a second. <laughs> Finally, he launched himself off at breakneck speed, batted at the spider, and caught it in his mouth, just as he landed on his feet. Mr. Friskers smiled contentedly and settled down for a nap. Moira sobbed with relief. For the first time, she felt a glimmer of hope. She went over to pet good Mr. Friskers, but he didn't respond to her touch. Mr. Friskers' mouth fell open and out crawled the spider. For the first time, Moira noticed the orange hourglass on its back. <clears throat> Moira broke down crying. She looked up at the cake, its thirteenth and final candle, twinkling to an end, and she felt a great certainty that her time was upon her. Young as she was, she knew in that instant that she had not lived enough, or done enough, or experienced enough in her thirteen years. But, at the same awful instinct, she knew that every final breath deserves a final meal. She picked up a fork and went to her birthday cake. She lifted that first delicate bite to her lips, and the house was dark. Yay! <laughs> and the curtain closes. There you go. And the author then sputters and gasps and dies. <laughs> we should have had exactly 13 guests at our party. It would have made it that much creepier. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> very nice. Yeah. Thank you very much. And that's that was why Gretter had a lifelong phobia of birthday cakes. <laughs> and and spiders with hourglasses on them. <laughs> exactly. And always picked his birthday nose. Birthday cakes. I don't want candles on my birthday cake. <laughs> no candles. No candles. No candles and no no nighttime. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays, everybody. Yes. That's your ghost story extravaganza of the year. So, uh, folks, first of all, Andre, thank you for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. And thank I mean, you I'll come and kill 13-year-olds anytime. <laughs> Uh, we'll cut that part out. <laughs> the FBI may be interested in that snippet. Oh, they're already uh, tracking me. This story has done me in. <laughs> um, if you like what we're doing, you can always support the show. And uh, $5 a month will get you your portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. You can choose the manner of your death and Ooh. I'll draw a little candle going out. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there there could be a draugr trying to scrape its way in through the window in the background. Oh, as well, I want my portrait is a draugr. <laughs> if I, if I keep draugr? unsubscribing from Patreon and then resubscribing, do I get a new picture every time? You can't power game this. I can't. <laughs> no. no power gaming I'm with Patreon. this one. Yeah, nope. right. Exactly. <laughs> By the way, everybody listening, I will say I'm in Brendan's recording studio. I am surrounded by the portraits he's done of different people in different time periods and styles. They are amazing. If you haven't seen them online, uh, check them out. And it really is worth signing up to the Patreon to see yourself in, in that kind of a 
Whatever. I mean, we've got... What do we have up here? We have Cleopatra. We have ancient, like, Irish soldiers. Civil War. Rosie the Riveter. Uh, but it's all fans of the show in these these postures and looks. It's really yep. cool. And you can see them all on our supporters page at www.deadideas.net. And uh, you can support at www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod. All right, everybody. We will see you next time. Happy holidays. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. Thank you.